Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. As we close out 2018, we look back at the extraordinary year of 1968. This week, a conversation with University of Minnesota Professor of African American and African Studies, Keith Mays, on the significance of 1968 in relation to the civil rights movement. We sat down with him in his office on the U of M campus. Professor Mays, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you so much, Jim. Glad to be back. Where does 1968 fit into the larger context of the civil rights movement? Was it indeed a pivotal year? Yes, I would say so, although you could say that same thing about 1967 and 66 and 69. I think the 1960s was such a pivotal decade in many ways because I can't think of one single year in the decade where you didn't have a a lot of robust civil rights activity, demonstrations, organizing, uh, key leaders and figures of the decade that emerged, some of them in the early 1960s, only for some of them to sort of, you know, remake themselves and show up in different places in the mid-1960s, in the latter part of the 1960s, the decade as well. So it's hard for me to pick one year, but by all historic accounts and the consensus, many people would put 1968 up there as the year of the decade. Well, of course, one of the pivotal events of 1968, a tragic one, was the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, April 4th, 1968. Do you think the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. was also perhaps symbolically the death of the civil rights movement? A lot of people argue that. Scholars debate not only the beginnings or the sparks of the civil rights movement, but many scholars have tried to figure out when did the civil rights movement come to an end or started to decline. And 1968, because of the assassination of Martin Luther King, is the year of declension for many people. Uh, that's an old perspective. It's a part of an old civil rights narrative because a lot of people used to view black power, which starts in 1966, kind of, because of the Meredith March. James Meredith. James Meredith. He got ambushed. And so Stokely Carmichael and Martin Luther King picked up where he was. And so black power, people dated as the beginnings of 1966, although now scholars argue that it started much earlier. But by 1968, if you mark black power as starting in 1966, a lot of people think that the nonviolent direct action phase of the civil rights movement began to decline in 1968. And the symbolic event is the assassination of Martin Luther King. Now, that's an old perspective. But there's no doubt about it that something changed after the assassination of MLK. And when you couple that with the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and the Democratic National Convention in August, it does seem or appear that the civil rights movement, as well as the new left, loses some steam. But again, I don't know if that is a matter of fact or is that may just be people like me, historians, who just provide that kind of interpretation about 68 and the assassination of MLK. So sometimes it's hard to tell. Well, let's talk about what brought Martin Luther King Jr. to Memphis. Of course, it was the strike by the sanitation workers. What exactly was King trying to do when he came to Memphis? And uh, tell us a little bit about the background to that strike. So the Memphis strike is going to start because I think it was two to three sanitation workers got killed 
in an accident that was just part of their regular job duties. And the Memphis workers, the sanitation workers, wanted redress for sure, but at minimum they wanted a hearing. They wanted the people, their bosses, and the city officials in Memphis to understand what they were facing on a daily basis. So the way racism typically worked was that we will deny you guys to have a, a hearing to sort of grieve this in a way that is respectful not only to you as men, but to you as workers. So they decided to go out on strike. Nothing unusual about that, but the way in which the city would respond to the strikers is what set off the movement in Memphis. And so King is asked to come in to aid in that struggle, and he's doing so in the middle of planning for the Poor People's Campaign. And it was a difficult decision by members of his organization, SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, because planning for another march on Washington across the country was going to take him away from that planning. And so members of the organization didn't want him to go. He decides to go anyway, and he returns. He goes back uh, more than once just to aid it, to keep it going, to sort of provide some local and national perspective. King was always good at working with local leaders on the ground. And so before there's a conclusion to the local march, uh, he's assassinated on April 4th, 1968. We're talking with Keith Mays. He's a professor in the Department of African American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota. Our guest is Keith Mays. He's a professor in the Department of African American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota. Some of the last audio and video we have of Dr. King was recorded the night before his assassination, April 3rd, and he delivered a a very, what turned out to be prophetic speech. I've been to the mountaintop. Tell us about that speech, and did that help rally the forces of the civil rights movement after Dr. King died because essentially he said he was willing to sacrifice himself for this greater cause. Tell us about the impact of that speech. The speech was very impromptu. Again, uh, a tired King decides to go to the church to deliver the speech, didn't want to do so. And he, in many ways, prophesies his death in that speech. Uh, When he says, I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight we will make it to the promised land. And the collective we is cer- certainly is the audience in the church, but I think the collective we is certainly black America and maybe all of America because at that moment, uh, King was at his grandest. And so to f- not say he foretold his death, but certainly I think the increasing pressure on him uh, not only to deliver, for poor people and marginalized people, but the sort of the chase that had been ongoing by the federal government and this sort of war of attrition on King sort of took his toll. And certainly, you know, no one knew that James Earl Ray was waiting in the cut to actually assassinate him and to take him out of here. But in that speech, he he felt that that day was coming. Uh, I don't know if he knew that that day was uh, April 4th would be the next day, but certainly it was very prophetic, the words in that speech that he delivered uh, inside that church. After Dr. King's assassination, obviously the Poor People's Campaign went on, the March on Washington, and Ralph Abernathy picked up the torch. Tell us about the outcome of the Poor People's Campaign. So the Poor People's Campaign, the planning went on, and it took place uh, in the summer. And part of the Poor People's Campaign that was so great was that they set up a city in Washington, D.C. People call it a tent city. 
Uh, it was called Resurrection City, and it was meant to make a statement about the conditions that ordinary people face across the country. What better way to do it is to have, uh, I hate to use the word caravan, but to have a caravan of poor people, poor Americans, uh, ordinary Americans, American citizens show up in Washington, D.C., and to say that, you know, we are here because we want our issues addressed. And, of course, it didn't have Martin Luther King. Uh, so it was different with R- Ralph Abernathy. But, you know, it wasn't just King or Ralph or SCLC. It was many people who made that happen. Young Jesse Jackson at the time, Marion Wright Element, a lot of key people. The idea of a poor people's campaign came from her. And so, but people always talk about the weather and how... It just rained. There were downpours for much of the time that the people from across the country were there. It put a damper on the activities, but it did not dampen the spirit of those folks who decided to show up because, again, it was just a continuation of all the earlier demonstrations that King and others had been part of. Tell us about the Civil Rights Act of 1968, also known as the Fair Housing Act. Why was this piece of legislation important to the movement, and what has been its legacy? The Civil Rights Act of 1968 was interesting because uh, I argue to some extent that without the assassination of Martin Luther King, we don't know if President Johnson would have signed it. So it's telling in the sense that the timing of it, you know, these acts are always generated the year or two before in Congress. And there's a lot of jockeying for position and there's a lot of people who support Certain bills don't support other versions of the bills. Sometimes the the bills don't get out of committees. So it's finally in a place where, because of the assassination, it's the speed of the legislation is something that's taken up after the assassination. So wondering without King dying, would the legislation would have passed? But the centerpiece of it is the fair housing feature, which is going to end discrimination in housing. The rental, the selling of property, you cannot discriminate basis of race, uh, national origin, religion, think sex and, and disability is added later in later years as a central piece of legislation because it's going to end housing discrimination as we knew it for decades. And whether the practices were steering, social steering as a practice, ensuring that black and brown people are not shown houses on a private market as well as rental properties, so they outlawed that. The practice of redlining, uh, which in many ways so many entities were complicit in uh, not lending uh, money to African-American buyers, uh, but the collusion of uh, federal government, of uh, real estate uh, organizations, banks. So many people were involved in that redlining scheme to keep black buyers and to steer them in certain neighborhoods that were labeled red, that were uh, where red lines were drawn around black and brown neighborhoods. So Civil Rights Act 1968 is seen as a key piece of policy that sort of sits alongside Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, it's up there. But there's a part of the Civil Rights Act that did something dirty, which was that the Anti-Riot Act, which is also part of the 1968 Civil Rights Act, prohibited African-American activists and intellectuals and organizers, people like H. Rap Brown, it's Stokely Carmichael. As, as a matter of fact, uh, I forget the section of the Civil Rights Act 68, but they call the H. Rap Brown 
section, which meant that, you know, these activists used to crisscross the country to give public speeches about black folks and the movement and what it meant for folks to organize. And, of course, this is in the middle of the riots. So because of the assassination of Martin Luther King, we have something called the King Riots that took place from April 4th all the way through the summer of 68. But you also have urban riots that took place from 64. Harlem riot, Chicago, Detroit, 67. Watts, 65. So here's the thing about those riots. The folks who were being blamed for starting the riots were people like Stokely Carmichael and H. Rod Brown because of the black power rhetoric. So the Congress slipped in the legislation of 1967, which would be the Act of 68, an anti-riot provision that was meant to stop the activities of not only black power activists, but anti-war activists. So stuff hits the fan in August of 1968 at the Democratic National Convention because the Chicago 7, all those folks who got attacked, Bobby Seale, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, all those folks got caught up in that. And some of the early charges of new left activists and black power activists was that provision in the 1968 Act, the Anti-Riot Act. So although that big piece of legislation, that big policy gave us the fair housing legislation, it also gave us that anti-riot legislation as well. Does the Fair Housing Act still play an important role today, or do we need new legislation and other measures to address continued segregation in today's housing market? I would say yes, because those things are still happening. It may be more difficult to socially steer people in certain neighborhoods, but uh, we have all kinds of issues with discrimination in the private housing market and the rental market as well. Back then, we had something called urban renewal. Today, we have something called gentrification and the ways in which realtors show people houses in certain neighborhoods. Certain neighborhoods are still concentrated based on race. And so I think there is still a need to address issues around discrimination and the concentration of populations in you know, high poverty areas are still taking place because of the ways in which people are able to get around the provisions in the Civil Rights Act of 1968 for sure. Let's look at the legacy of the Lyndon Johnson administration. On one hand, Johnson helped pass the landmark Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s. On the other, Vietnam mars much of his policymaking during his presidency and the backlash against the war arguably cost his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who was a civil rights champion, uh, the 1968 presidential election. How are these two legacies of Johnson reconciled in today's context? I think LBJ is understood to be the civil rights president. I remember when uh, Hillary Clinton was running against Barack Obama in the 2008 primary, and Hillary Clinton was was asked, you know, who, who was responsible for these great policies of the 60s? And, of course, she said Lyndon Johnson. A lot of people in black America was kind of pissed off because MLK, bare minimally, but, of course, he gets too much credit oftentimes. She didn't say MLK, but a lot of people wanted her to say the grassroots black struggle. Okay, but certainly MLK would have been an acceptable answer. Not LBJ, not Lyndon B. Johnson, because the credit went to a man who just signed the legislation. But a credible argument can be made about LBJ and the statesmanlike position that he would come to take 
around civil rights legislation. Yes, the grassroots movement made it possible for this legislation, at least to start in Congress. LBJ, his legacy can't be denied because as a Southern politician, as a former senator who was against the Civil Rights Act in the 1950s, uh, he emerges as a different kind of politician. His legacy as a public official can't be gainsay because he not only just signed pieces of legislation, he stood up and he walked the walk from 64 to 68. Now, you're absolutely right. The Vietnam War is going to mire his presidency and he's not going to be able to recover. But the legacy of LBJ as seen in somebody like a Hubert Humphrey I mean, his legacy can't be denied either, going all the way back to uh, mayor of Minneapolis in the 40s, and certainly as junior senator, then senator of, of Minnesota, and then people like Walter Mondale. But things start to happen to these guys. Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement. I would say uh, Hubert Humphrey got hurt by the MFDP, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Parties, and their attempt to be seated at the 64 Democratic National Convention. And LBJ did not want to seat them and he sent Hubert Humphrey and Walter Mondale to stop it. So the support that Humphrey has, LBJ, in 64, 65, it begins to wane for many different reasons by 67, 68. So when it wasn't a mistake when Eugene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy decided to jump into the race in early part of 1968, and they were getting a lot of delegates, receiving a lot of support. The handwriting was on the wall for LBJ. He decided not to seek the nomination and I want to say even maybe Bob March, he had decided to throw in the towel and then um, uh, Bobby Kennedy decides to jump in. But he has a lot of competition. I mean, you got George Wallace on the one hand, but you got Eugene McCarthy, George McGovern. I mean, there's a lot of folks who decided because of the war and because of the civil rights movement and the black power movement, although he is the statesman in the middle of that LBJ, it's a funny thing, Jim, to see a president be so popular in, in one year, 64, 65, and had that turnaround in a year or two. And he was officially done by March of 68, right before Martin Luther King is assassinated, and then Bobby Kennedy in June 68. How did the election of President Nixon in 1968 alter the course of the civil rights movement? Well, we saw the seeds of it in 64. So it's hard to talk about 1968 without talking about 1964, because Barry Goldwater, people slept on, again, the groundswell of support that he received in 1964. But he wasn't the right candidate for the Republican Party, for the right. Richard Nixon was. And though Richard Nixon wasn't the right candidate in 1960, by the time we get to 68, he is. Because they ran a campaign that was about law and order. And what better way to stamp the progressive left and to demonize it in many ways, when you got uh, new left protesters, anti-war protesters in the street, you have black power activists crisscrossing the country, making speeches, and then you can associate those actions with the urban riots. So although the patron saint has been assassinated, maybe arguably too with Bobby Kennedy and MLK, it doesn't matter if you can sell to the country, particularly those who are starting not to believe in the spirit of the civil rights movement only because they see other things out in the street. They see crime. So all of the activities by white leftists and black leftists and activists 
are becoming more and more associated with criminal activity. And an anti-riot act is just one response. The other response is Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy and the way in which he is going to use crime as a wedge issue that works. And the beginnings of the unraveling of the civil rights movement, people point to, you know, 81 with Reagan, but it was already in process, although you had the administrations of Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford and others. But really, it's 1968 that begins to not only undermine the civil rights movement, but realign electoral politics in the South, so that the South is not Democrat, we used to call a one-party region, one-party South, the solid South being thoroughly Democrat, it will be almost thoroughly Republican some 30, 35, 40 years later. We're talking with Keith Mays. He's a professor in the Department of African American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota. Our guest is Keith Mays. He's a professor in the Department of African American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota. Do you see many parallels from the 1968 civil rights movement to today? One that comes to mind immediately, the 68 Summer Olympics protest in Mexico City. U.S. sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists in a black power salute at the awards ceremony at the Olympics, and it cost them dearly. But this seems to hearken to what we're seeing today, certainly something that has cost Colin Kaepernick dearly in the NFL and other athletes who are taking a knee during the national anthem. Is this, a, is this a parallel 50 years hence that we're seeing? It is a parallel that black athletes decide to stand up and to see themselves as part of a larger struggle for justice. It was not happenstance in the 1960s that we, we have John Carlos and Tommy Smith alongside people like Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown. Oh, it's so heart-wrenching to see Jim Brown and President Trump's office because I was trying to figure out what he was doing there, given his legacy. So, yes, this, but there was a generation of athletes that did not stand up in the 80s, in the 90s. Michael Jordan took a lot of heat for not standing up. But now we have Colin Kaepernick, LeBron James, and other people lending their voices to the current struggles around police violence and other things. And it's been a 180. It's a sea change to see athletes and entrepreneurs and musicians rise up and bear minimally lend their voice to a cause. It's a wonderful thing to see. I also remember in 1968, I don't remember personally, but just reading uh, Arthur Ashe wins the, uh, I think he's the first black tennis player to win a major open, tournament. Yes. A tournament, mm-hmm. yeah. So Arthur Ashe is important in that struggle as well. And his legacy lives on even today. We're talking about black politicians, so the Democratic wave that we just witnessed about a month ago, it reminds me also of Shirley Chisholm in 68, becoming the first black U.S. congresswoman. And one scratches the head to say, wait a minute, that was she was the first one in 68? Yeah, she was the first one, and then we didn't get another one. We first black senator, Carol Mosley Braun, some decades later. So these first uh, continuing to happen, but it's nice to see Democratic politicians sort of stand on the shoulders of giants back then. It's nice to see black athletes today stand on the shoulders of giants some three, four decades ago. It's, it's really nice to see when there seemingly there was a lull there for two to three decades right after the civil rights movement. What are some of the major issues that African-American leaders are concerned with today? 
The same issues that they were concerned about yesterday, Jim. I just hate to say that, that it's about housing and employment and education. They're concerned about all the gaps and the disparities that we saw 50 years ago. And it hasn't changed. What we the most obvious change is that we have more black and brown people as part of the middle class, but there's only been a segment of the black American population that hasn't really been as many as it could have been based on that movement. Uh, that movement was about augmenting the boundaries of democracy, and I think it did that, but it didn't do it for enough people. So the, the issues have not changed, it's just that we haven't seen the effects, the positive effects of having some of those disparities and those inequalities close. And now we may even see, not may, but we, we see those gaps widening, seemingly more insurmountable uh, now than they were back some four or five decades ago. So I would say it's still basic issues of housing, education, employment, discrimination, um, police, and public safety of black bodies. Do you think the next generation of political leaders and activists in the Black Lives Matter movement will push for civil rights era legislation, or is there some cynicism that legislation in the past did not solve inequality? I think that law is always important. I think we can't always say that black people can't do things thoroughly different in the sense that if laws are are in place to protect other Americans, it should be able to do the same thing for them. So I don't think that they should radically take another course. But I would say, and what's been amazing to me, is the the kinds of solutions that black people put forward. Uh, So I'm just thinking about Angela Davis, who was a civil rights stalwart. And she's always been about prison reform. But I'm going to sell her short if I say prison reform because it reminds me of the current movement for criminal justice reform. But Angela Davis talks about prison abolition. And what she means by that, she doesn't mean like just letting people out of jail, opening up the gates and letting people out. She means working on the things that will prevent people from going in in the first place. So if the answer to your question is for black leaders to come up with different kinds of solutions to some long tractable problems? Yes, I think there's some people out there who, you you say Black Lives Matter, Angela Davis has been around a long time. So the newer generation of black leaders and activists and organizers, as well as the more veteran and seasoned ones, I think could put their heads together and come up with some things that we haven't heard before, maybe slightly different, but that doesn't mean that we abdicate the way in which uh, laws and the policies are supposed to protect Americans, all Americans, not just white Americans, but those who are marginalized, racially marginalized, and who are at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Keith Mays is a professor in the Department of African American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota. Professor Mays, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Oh, thank you so much, Jim. It's been great. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Coming up next week, we continue with our look back to 1968 and how the extraordinary events of that year shaped the future of America and the world. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.